1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May twelfth for up to thirty percent off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell.
2: Every step of the day, it seems like Russia is trying to take an opposite position of, of ours wherever we go. Whether it's arms control, Africa, you know, Argentina. China, always taking the opposite perspective. It's about showing himself as being, as being dominant, showing that he still is a player in this great world order and that, you know, with his vast nuclear capabilities, that, that we need to take him seriously. Do you think he sees us as strong or weak? So, I'm, you know, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I'd have to I'll have to look back on that. I yeah. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, what do, what do I think? Yeah, and yeah. I think he would think we are weak. I do think China is our biggest challenge. You know, a lot of it is, what is our policy there? Are, are we going to coexist? Do we view them as a, as a threat? You know, the intelligence community is actually very engaged in, in working with the policy side of the house to help come up with this sort of national strategy and policy on this. I compared Russia searching for relevance, China searching for dominance, and to being, to being looked at as a world power, and they're absolutely on that trajectory right now. And so how are we as a, as a country want to you know, live in a world like that? And how do we exist? It, it's, that's the one that keeps me awake. Ellen McCarthy is the Assistant
0: Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research, a unit at the State Department that is also a member of the intelligence community. Ellen started her career as an analyst in the IC, and since then she has spent time both rising up the ladder in a number of different IC entities, as well as leading organizations outside the government. She served in senior positions in the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, in Coast Guard Intelligence, and in the office in the Department of Defense that oversees intelligence activities. I had a chance to sit down with Ellen to discuss her career, the role of the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, as well as some key substantive issues. This is the second interview in our series, Leaders of the IC. We'll be right back with that discussion. I'm Michael Morrell and this is Intelligence Matters. Ellen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be
2: here. Thank you so much.
0: I should remind our listeners that this is the second in what will be a series of interviews with the currently serving leadership of the intelligence community. Russ Travers from the National Counterterrorism Center was our first, and we are very lucky to have you so early in this series. Perhaps the best place to start is to talk a bit about your career. You started your government career as an analyst in the Office of Naval Intelligence. How did you end up there? What was your first account and do you remember some of the things that you worked
2: on? Oh, great. So I started at uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence in the late 80s, but the way I actually got the job was I was a um, reporter um, and a circulation manager for the Capitol newspaper wow. in Annapolis. So a journalist becoming an intelligence officer. Exactly. And uh, the publisher of the paper, Phil Merrill, took a special interest in me and um, served as a mentor to me, uh, helped me um, apply and ultimately work through a graduate program at the University of Maryland. and And then throughout the course of mentoring said, you know, have you thought about intelligence? And I really hadn't. At that time, I was working at the Institute for Defense Analysis um, doing a project. Actually, it was, it was my thesis as well as a project for IDA on Depressed Trajectory Ballistic Missiles as a wow. countermeasure to SDI. Wow, wow. And, and through, through that and through this mentorship, um, the Office of Naval Intelligence uh, became an opportunity. I'll tell you, I never had... You know, unlike you and your career, probably, I was not this, you know, this high school student that thought, you know, someday I'm going to work in the intelligence community. It actually just sounded like fun. And I thought, well, we'll do this for a couple of years and then I'll move back to Annapolis and I'll have my boat and my house Mm -hmm. and my golden retriever and and I'll work at naval proceedings. That's really what my, my goal was. But every job and every opportunity tended to be more fun. So I stuck with it for a while. And here I am today. Did you do Soviet? Things when you started. So when I started, like at everybody Olin, else I, did? I was the Soviet submarine scrapping analyst at then oh. the Naval Technical Intelligence Center. So I oh. followed Soviet s- scrapping of submarines, and I would be expected to report on it. It because it, 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 we time, needed an
0: accurate count, so we needed to know how many they were bringing on as well as how many they were
2: scrapping. Absolutely, it was it contributed to order of battle numbers. And through that, I became more and more interested in in the Soviet Navy and the Soviet submarine program. I worked. Uh, Soviet submarine design for a while. And then I moved over to the operational side and started following sub- Soviet submarine um, deployments like everybody did back mm-hmm. back in those days. Did you have your own submarine you followed? I did. I had I had the Akula. Yeah, it was very well, cool. Wow, well, wow. Well. So I assume, Ellen,
0: that this was a male-dominated business when you started? Absolutely. How did you
2: navigate that? You know, I, I it was a male-dominated business, but, you know, I think this is where ignorance is a little bit of bliss. I didn't really... Uh, I didn't really know any different. It was just the way it was. And I think it was also because I had some phenomenal bosses who all happened to be men who continued to encourage me um, and develop me, mentor me, although we didn't have mentoring. That was not the term of art at the time. But I just had great bosses who kept working with me. So I really didn't know any better. I'll tell you, it was very interesting. I only realized later in my career, and it was the, the jump from GS-15 to senior executive. Then did I realize that while I had great male bosses, it was the women um, who I worked with who really actively engaged on my behalf and helped me make that leap from uh, GS-15 to senior executive. And that was an important lesson that I share with all those that I work with today.
0: And what advice would you give to a, a young woman today, you know, just starting in the intelligence community? It's,
2: it's a still a pretty male-dominated business. It's much better than it was when I started. I think the the Fran Townsend's and the Joan Dempsey's and the Tish Long's and the Sue Gordon's have really they've blazed a path for women to come in and to Gina Haspel now. Gina Haspel is exactly to they've really blazed a path for women to come into this community and be looked at as somebody who could be the director of the CIA at some point. But, you know, the advice I give um, all of the women I work with is that it's not only important to be really good at what you do. But it's really important to have and maintain a very strong network. And it has to be men and, and women. And it's, it's time, it takes time-consuming to do that. It's not easy since most of us in the intelligence community are introverts. But it's just critically important to not only help you in your development, but as you look at making next steps to get people to actively engage in your behalf. I
0: think the men part of that men and women network is really important because it's often men who are making decisions. So you want those in your network, right? whether you're male or female. Absolutely. It's really important. So, Ellen, you've had a very interesting and atypical career, I would say. You served in several different IC organizations, and you served outside of government, but in roles that supported the intelligence community. So I think that gives you a a set of experiences, a breadth of experience that many in the IC don't have. I mean, I served my entire career at CIA except for a short stint at NCTC. And given all of that, I'd love to hear how those experiences across the IC and in the private sector have informed
2: how you think about your job now. Well, Michael, thank you for that question, because I have to believe that uh, all of those experiences are are exactly why I was selected to be the assistant secretary of state at INR. You know, when I started, just like you, you know, you went to one agency and that's where you spent your career. So at the Office of Naval Intelligence Most of my counterparts, many of them are still there today. And it was funny, as I was making moves, uh, my move from ONI was then I moved down to Norfolk to work for Sincland Fleet as an analyst. And a lot of people were very aghast. Why would you do that? You know, you'll never be able to come back once you leave. And I think that was the way it it worked at the time. But as I implied uh, before, I was just doing this because I thought this was fun. And it was only as I got deeper and deeper and gained more experience did I realize that I have a passion for this community. But I really took opportunities for the most part because I thought they'd be fun, mm. which I know fun is highly underrated, yeah. but, but when yeah. you think about the amount of time we spend doing this. Yeah. Do you think you manage and lead differently because of the experiences you've had particularly I, in the private sector? I absolutely do. I think when you don't, you know, when you're, when you're pursuing something because you think it's fun or interesting and when you realize that you always have options, you know, I, I've I've joked before I, I started as a waitress. But I'll tell you, uh, I've used that, that thinking throughout every job I've had. If this doesn't work out, I can always go back to waitressing, which means that you're willing to take on a little more risk. You're willing to try new things. You're not, you're not so worried about how this decision is going to impact the next opportunity. And that's been the way I've operated throughout. Yeah. So I, I'll tell you, I've taken jobs that have sounded fun and interesting. Uh, when I went to the Coast Guard, all my friends in Navy said, why would you want to go to the Coast Guard? They don't shoot anything. But this was uh, post-Cold War, and in those days, the Coast Guard was shooting more things than the Navy was, and, and uh, you know, I found that the time there, helping get them get membership in the intelligence community, was clearly going to set me up to do some other things, I-, I think, at senior levels. So all of these opportunities, I-, I started as an analyst but moved into the more of the management side of intelligence, so I learned about people and human capital and contracts and acquisitions and the budget and the budget process. The Hill, and and then having gone out into the private sector and run two nonprofits, um, all affiliated with the IC. I mean, I really gained a perspective of how the IC runs, how what our value is, what the private sector's value is, and so I come into State INR, which is the oldest all-source intelligence entity in the intelligence community. I don't know if a lot of people realize that. Uh, you know, we predate your own CIA in terms of it being an all-source intelligence agency. And we've been doing this for an awfully long time. I have to believe it is my experience in management, people, dollars, requirements that um, will really assist me in, in, you know, potentially making some new investments in INR that will really help it get ready to look at the future threat. So, Ellen, you've already made the transition
0: to INR. What is its mission and can you give us an example of how it executes that mission?
2: So at at its very core... INR's mission is to support the Secretary of State and all the senior policymakers within the State Department. We also have a corollary mission to ensure that the intelligence community is focused on foreign policy issues, on collections that are related to foreign policy, and working with the IC in certain operations, ensuring that they're in line with, with foreign policy. But at its heart, we are an all-source intelligence agency whose job it is to inform um, in a timely manner, the Secretary of State and, and and his cadre of foreign policy makers.
0: And do you see on a regular basis how what your folks do
2: benefit diplomacy? Oh, I see my folks benefit diplomacy every day in terms of um, articulating the value that INR has to state. Part of our value is, is that we are embedded with the policymaker. Uh, the people of INR, for the most part, have been working their region or their functional area for an average of 17 years. So they truly are um, experts in, in their particular area. But they're also embedded with the policymakers. So they are actually sitting in the regional and functional bureaus every day. They're developing relationships with the secretaries and the assistant secretaries and the and the desk officers. And they truly have a um, a very mutual benefit relationship in that our analysts very much understand the needs and the wants of the right. policymakers. So they maker.
0: know where where the policymakers are in their thinking. Right. They know what they know. Right. More importantly, they know what they don't know right. and what they need, and that's really powerful.
2: It's very powerful. And we're also small, so we're much smaller than the other all source agencies by, you know, a factor of five. But that also makes us more agile and it also gives us a much more strategic perspective. So whereas you know, I was the Akula analyst at, at Office of Naval Intelligence at one point. At, at, at INR, I have analysts that are looking at six countries at one time. So they take a much more strategic perspective on things. So you have said they focus on the secretary
0: and the senior policymakers at state, but they do write for the president, correct? Absolutely. And and, and how do you make that decision when, when does it make sense for INR to sit back
2: and write for the president? Well, it works a couple of ways in terms of uh, – providing um, articles to the president's daily brief. I'll tell you, we're, we are uh, very incentivized to work on the, on the president's daily brief for a couple of reasons. One, because the president is, all, is our ultimate customer. But second, because the secretary of state is also an avid consumer of the, of the PDB. And so it really is important to um, include intelligence that is going to be you know, not only targeted to the president, but targeted to the secretary and to things that matter to him. So the, the way in which articles are submitted is you know, we, work across, we work with the IC in, in, in terms of identifying articles that will go in. Either we're asked or we provide you know, recommend, recommendations, but they're always tied to things that matter to the secretary. And importantly,
0: you also see what everybody else writes for the president and you have an opportunity
2: to comment and you have an opportunity to say, hey, we have a different view. Is that right? Absolutely. We're we're embedded with the PDB staff. In fact, the Secretary's briefer is a state department employee. You know, we're very proud of our participation in the PDB. In fact, per capita, so per number of analysts, INR is the number one producer of That's the PDB. That's right. So we we are we we're, we're very much embedded in the process. And that dissent, that that dissent process, that opportunity
0: for other analysts in the community to say, "Hey, I disagree with that." That's important,
2: right? It's, it's critically important. And it's something that INR is pretty proud of. That's part of our history. It's part of our ethos where we are the dissenters, um, you know, going back to World War II and the in the OSS days. And and I think it's because we do have this this unique perspective. We are so aligned with the foreign policymaker. We do come in and we're very free to say that we, we really think this. And, and we're right a lot of the times. So. Yeah.
0: so Ellen, when looking at What your analysts do and what analysts in various other IC organizations do, particularly the CIA, is there a distinction or not?
2: I think there absolutely is a distinction between INR and other all-source analysts in the IC, CIA especially. We work most closely with with CIA um, in terms of the policy realm. So again, our, our our differences is the trust we have with the policymaker. Again, it's because we're so closely aligned to to them throughout throughout our careers. So we're not just coming and going. You know, we're not doing two or three year rotations in state. We're we are absolutely embedded with them. It's also the the makeup of the staff. Our staff is composed of both civil service officers and foreign service yeah, officers. Yeah, I wanted to ask
0: you about that. Yeah,
2: and I think that also is adds different, you know, a, a different flavor. So we'll have foreign service officers who'll come in for two year rotations. And they really bring in this unique perspective. So they've been they've been serving they've, overseas. They've been they've serving been overseas. In, in, in a region for a long time and they come back and spend a couple of years with you. And they'll run a group of analysts or they'll be an analyst or they'll work intelligence operations and they bring in that outside experience. They're also great you know, they they also help us with our brand in terms of going back out to the field to talk about um, I, what the what the IC does, but especially what I what INR does. And I, I, that's really what sets us apart we also take a much broader view again we're only about 250 analysts so we don't have we don't have the luxury of, of looking at one system or one city or one country we look you might have than... an analyst at CIA who looks at one North Korean missile absolutely yeah. but I'll tell you that turns out to be a, a, a great partnership a great way to work and we do I'll tell you there's nothing that INR does that we can't do without leveraging the community because we are so small <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Ellen McCarthy.
1: She has brought us the world. It
2: is a new day here in this country.
1: And told America's most important stories.
2: How does a government shutdown affect national security?
1: She's opened our eyes.
2: And what happened to you?
0: I was sexually assaulted my freshman year.
1: And our hearts.
0: Were you scared? Mm-hmm.
1: What were you thinking? About my mom. Now, she brings us truth and understanding right when we need it most. Wow, this is pretty spectacular. The CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell, beginning July 15th.
0: So, Ellen, I would love to dig in to some substantive issues, but perhaps do it in a way that we've not done before on the show. I believe that one of the key jobs of the IC is to tell our national security policymakers, including the president, how the other guy is thinking. What is their mindset, what is their view, what are their perspectives of us, right? And our policymakers. I think it's incredibly important for our leaders to know where the other guy's coming from. So what I'd love to do, if it's okay with you, is I'd love to throw out some countries and leaders and get you to talk a bit about how you think and how your analysts think they think about us, without okay. getting into anything classified, of course. Okay. So let's start with North Korea and Kim Jong-un. How do you think he sees us? How does he think about us? What does he think we
2: want, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to preface it with that this INR is actually in a unique role to be able to answer this question because there are a couple things we do that some of the other IC agencies don't do. And one of which is we have a very robust opinion polling capability. So for... For 40 years, we have developed a very sound based in science methodology for going out and gaining other co- people's perspectives on on matters that are important to the intelligence community. So that's why I consider to do
0: did, this for the whole community. We correct? do this
2: for the entire community. We'll do it's it. For in, the entire government, actually. A- yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, oftentimes we'll have other combatant commands, other agencies that will come in and they'll ask us to to pick a country, pick a region. And so we we. We do this all all year long, and we do, you know, hundreds of polls that are – the methodology includes uh, not only polling but sitting down and doing some focus groups in in the country and and combining, you know, that experience, that feedback, and then then using the intelligence. So actually looking at the the classified information and really coming up with an assessment. Mm -hmm. And we're very good at it. Again, more often than not, when it comes to elections or activities, we, we are able to predict it in advance, um, well in advance. So we're pretty proud of that capability. So I,
0: so I imagine there's some places you can do this and then some places it get really hard to do it, correct? It,
2: it, it does get it hard. Yeah, and yeah. so you asked specifically about North Korea, and that's an area where it's particularly hard hard to do that. So, you know, that's where we're really relying on uh, media analysis and, and other intelligence to get a sense of, in terms of Kim Jong-un, how he thinks of us and I, I would say that based on on our understanding of the media uh, and things that he has said, you know he really does think that the u s is is looking for regime change. In fact, of all the leaders that you've talked about, there's this view that the u s is looking to try and get regime change um and that I, he does not believe we'll take military action, and that he I, I think he thinks we cheat on on agreements and and that we're not necessarily um you know to be trusted in in that regard it's uh it is clear that he does have you know he does look at our pr- president of the United states and it and that and in him it's different you know when you read the media, there is a different relationship there. Mm-hmm. I can't say whether or not he likes or dislikes him. we don't know that, but I definitely get we definitely have assessed that he does look at the president and thinks this one is this one is different
0: um where do you think the 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 sense of regime change comes from um Just our relationship with South Korea, the fact that we have a military in South Korea, the fact that we fought a Korean war. I mean, is that is that is is it all of that or I mean, his father thought the same thing, you know, uh, this idea that we want to topple the regime and reunite the peninsula on the south.
2: I I think it's all the things that you said. But again, I think in general, when you look at all these world leaders, they all think that that's what we want. And and frankly, that's. You know, that has been a goal in many yeah, of our yeah. previous operations. Yeah, yeah, we've actually done that, right? right? Yeah. So, again, I, I, I can't speak to, you know, how Kim Jong feels now with, with President Trump. Because my sense is they do have a different relationship. And yeah. all the analysis suggests they have a different relationship. Yeah. So I don't know if that is as heavy in his on his mind yeah. as it was in the past.
0: I guess it's possible, right, that he views the president one way right. and he views the rest of our government as if it hasn't changed, right? It, exactly. It's still regime I change think that's there. very much. But, them. but, but you would say, you would say this is his fundamental issue. This is his his fundamental security issue that he has to solve, right? This fear that we want to get rid of him. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: But I think that's not as high an issue with this president, with President Trump. And you
0: know, there's a, the DNI made this very clear um, publicly, in the Worldwide Threat testimony earlier this year that the analysts in the intelligence community believe that Kim will never give up his weapons. And just wondering, you know, do your analysts share that view? What's your personal view? What's your sense on that?
2: My sense is that, that, that that's still very much where our analysts lie. But I will tell you that that's, you know, that's interesting um, where intelligence and policy is just a different—this uh, is the first time I've ever done this in terms of working the policy side of the house— And I know you haven't asked this question specifically, but lots of times you get asked the question about, you know, are you worried about policy bleeding over into intelligence, about intelligence morphing into policy or being politicized? And and the answer is I don't I'm not worried about that at INR because there 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 is a firm line. But it's also very clear that sometimes while intelligence may be in one place and policy may be in in another, Mm. we try our best to integrate, but we're not always right. So. You know, given, uh, you know, the recent meeting in, in North Korea, um, you know, we have a, a new strategy. Our, our policymakers are, you know, getting ready to to take advantage of this reset and we'll work as closely as we can with them to, to ensure they're getting all the intelligence they need to do their job.
0: Let me just one more point about that, because this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. I always found it not to be helpful to policymakers to have analysts tell them what they can't accomplish. And I used to tell mine, you know, when you tell them that Kim Jong-un is never going to give up his nuclear weapons, it's the same thing as a scout telling a coach that he can't win a game. And I would tell them find a way to be helpful, right, to to them achieving their goal.
2: Michael, absolutely. I think you're 100% right. And I'll tell you that's the practice at, at INR. And again, because we've been doing this for, you know 70 year 70 years now our, our analysts would never go and say to a policymaker you can't do this that's that is where intelligence is now jumping into policy and that's just not what we do but if all the intelligence is suggesting that this is a you know this this is what the intelligence says we will we will give it to the policymaker if they don't agree that's they get to do that and the and the analyst is not losing a, a moments of sleep because of it because it's our job to feed them the intelligence it's their job to develop the policy
0: They have a harder job at the end of the day, I used to find.
2: I will tell you that I've spent five months now, five whole months working policy, and I am awfully glad to be an intelligence officer in the United States intelligence community. So Iran, so switching
0: gears from North Korea to Iran, how do they see us? And, And maybe an interesting question here is, do you think there's a difference in how they see us depending on whether you're, say, the supreme leader or whether you're President Rouhani?
2: You know, I think uh, where Iran is different is uh, this. I mean, their their view of the United States goes back to you know the late seventies. In terms of you know, again, when you look at the media, there's this very much anti-U.S. Um, view, propaganda teachings. It, it goes back for an, for an awfully long time. So I suspect that those leaders, you know, very much are in in line with the the teachings and the propaganda um, that helped form who they who they are today and and what their baseline views are. I think when you look at the sanctions uh that have been imposed that it it almost certainly contributes to that overall antipathy towards the United States. It's 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 not helping. And so so you know I I and, and so given that they they are not pro US and, and given this long history of anti US propaganda I we don't see that changing.
0: Yes. Would you say that they share the North Korean view that w- we want to change the regime, that we want them to
2: go away? I absolutely think that that's, you know, again, based on the analysis, absolutely thinks that's think that's what they think.
0: Yeah. And
2: the, the president's made very clear that that's not our policy,
0: right. right? And the secretary's made very clear it's not our policy. The secretary's made clear that that we're trying to change their behavior. Right. But I'm wondering to what extent the fact that they have the view that we want their regime to go away – makes it more difficult for them to come to the negotiating table at the end of the day.
2: I suspect that's exactly why they are having a hard time coming to yeah. the negotiating table.
0: Yeah. So
2: Ellen, Russia,
0: Vladimir Putin, how do you think he sees us? What do you think he thinks we're trying to do to him? And I'm afraid we might have a consistency here with the other two.
2: I, I think we absolutely have a consistency here with the two, because I think you know, he so I I describe Russia. In fact, when you look at Russia and China, you know you've got two countries. One, Russia is fighting for relevance, China is fighting for dominance. So if you take that the perspective that Russia is is fighting for dominance, you know, anything that he can do to show himself and Russia as being a superpower is is anything that, that takes away from that theme, that story, um, he's not going to be happy with. And so I do believe that. And that's why every step of the day, it seems like Russia is trying to, to take an opposite position of, of ours, wherever we go, whether it's, um, arms control, Africa, you know, uh, Argentina, China, always taking the opposite perspective. It's about showing himself as being, as being dominant, showing that he still is a player in this great world order, um, and that, you know, with his vast nuclear capabilities, yeah. that, that we need to take him seriously. Do
0: you think he sees us as strong or weak?
2: So, I'm you know, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I'd have to – I'll have to look back on that. I yeah. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, what do, what do I think? Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. he would think we are weak and – I, you know what? I absolutely thinks so. I, I, he does believe that we are weak. Yeah, yeah, and he can take advantage. Right, of and every step of the day. I, um, you know, Michael, I, I remember um, you once at a at a uh, you were interviewing President Bush, and President Bush was relaying the story about dogs. I don't know if you remember oh, that yeah, story. I remember this. Yeah. And so President Bush had a very small dog. When President Bush went and visited President Putin for the first time, he made it a point to show President Bush's very large dog, and so and it was very important for him to see that. So. I think that is really insightful into who is Putin. And do you think the, uh, the Russian people share Putin's view of us? You think they're in a different place? So I don't have the data on okay. that. I'll have to – I mean I'll have to come back and get okay. to okay. Get, get to the answer on that. But I – yeah, I don't, I don't have the answer. So Ellen, one more country to
0: ask you about and at the end of the day, it's probably the most important, which is China. How do you think they see us?
2: You know, China is another country that it's hard to assess how they see us because the media is so
1: controlled, um,
2: yeah. so controlling. It's it's very interesting um, in terms of, you know, just just in general, not not answering your question directly. But, you know, you look at China is our biggest either competitor or threat, depending on, on you know, what, what our where our policy is on that. You know, are we going to coexist? Are we not? Um it's very interesting when you look at the world, you know, the world is still very much um, uh, aligned to the to the U.S. However, they look at China as this ginormous economic power and, you know, upon which that they can tap into resources to help their own economies, through the Belt and Road Initiative and, and right. others. Right. So, you know, in, tr- in terms of how the Chinese people think of us, it's very it's 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 hard to assess. I know how others think of us and how the others think of China. But I don't really know how 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 the Chinese look at us. I you know again I I just don't have that. Yeah.
0: Sort of my sense is that is that they see them on the rise and us on the on the de- on the decline. I, I right.
2: Think, I think that's true, and and it's it's funny because it seems like the we think that too in, yeah. in some ways, but, but absolutely think- they see themselves as a rising superpower. They've got a strategy. They've got the Belt and Road Initiative. They have. I mean, whether it's uh, it's it's agrarian, um, their agrarian portion of their economy to high-level IT, they're they're on the move, they're growing. They, other countries, see that is very positive and optimistic. But there is this, you know, at the same time that I think they do realize
0: that they were able to achieve this amazing growth that they've had, this amazing transformation that they've had because they lived in a world. Of stability created by the United States absolutely right and that they seem to be torn a little bit they don't want to be the world's policeman right right so it's it's very it's very complex very complicated right so Ellen a couple of final questions you've been terrific with your time and these are going to be questions that we ask every IC leader who sits down with us in this series the first one is what you see as the biggest national security foreign policy challenge facing the United States
2: well, we just talked a little bit about it, Michael, but I do think China is our biggest challenge. And, you know, a lot of it is, you know, how, what, is, where, what is our policy there? Are, are we going to coexist? Do we view them as a, as a threat? You know, and, and so, you know, the intelligence community is, is active, actually very engaged in, in working with the policy side of the House to help come up with this sort of national strategy and policy on this. But when you look at the growth of their military, um, you know their their military budget has doubled in the last couple of years. You know they're they're absolutely on on the incline. Then when you look at their commercial sector and um, how completely intertwined they are with our own commercial sector, that the world's commercial sector, and how you know how do we balance? And money matters. Money matters. Of, money matters at the end of the day. How do we balance uh, economic um, relationships with the threat and the fact that they are so different from us and how they how they think and how they operate and how they capture data, how they, how, you know, what, what is their goal down the line? I, again, I, I compared Russia searching for relevance, China searching for dominance and to being, to being looked at as a world power, and they're absolutely on that trajectory right now. And so how are we as a, as a country want to, you know, live in a world like that, and how do we exist? It, it's, that's the one that keeps me awake.
0: Okay, biggest challenge facing the intelligence community and being able to do its job down the road.
2: So from my optic, and we talked a little bit about this, um, not in a lot of detail, I have moved back and forth from the private sector into the government um, a couple of times. And in my last capacity, I was actually working for a company that provides capabilities to the intelligence community. And so I've seen firsthand how quickly technology is developing and how quickly the private sector can incorporate Capabilities um, into the way they do business. I've seen the value of open source data and the assumptions that it can make that rival what we do for a lot more money and not quite at the same pace. And I I really I really think in some ways we need to take a look. And I know Sugor and the PDNI is all over this, but we really need to take a look at how we do our business and and what our value is. Um, I, I think in some ways we're upside down. We should, instead of starting with our architecture at the highest classification level and working down, it should be the other way up. We should be designing a third rail and really incorporating open source inf- intelligence and capabilities much more quickly than we are I right think now.
0: I the, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is actually doing some of this. They're putting out unclassified commercial imagery and they're letting people analyze it and oh. ha- doing some crowdsourcing around that which is a really interesting and novel approach
2: so you approach. know my time at nga certainly yes. didn't hurt that v- view yeah. uh, because i absolutely saw what nga does with commercial imagery and and you know they're they're actually even looking at it from a business perspective and that we're not going to replicate in terms of budget you know national technical means for things that we can get in the private sector so
0: great and then last question what do you want the american people to know about the men and women of INR.
2: So I'll tell you that I, you know, I have moved back and forth and I have moved around a lot. And, um, but at the end of the day, I view myself as an intelligence officer, even though I've worked in many agencies. But when given the opportunity to come to INR, I still have to pinch myself because I can't believe it because INR was always, you know, they were always the smartest and, uh, you know, the, you know they were they were from my mind as a former all source analyst the best, and so to be given an opportunity to work with the best I mean these people um, not only have they spent 17 years on their account but they're all PhDs and JD, uh, lawyers and have multiple graduate degrees it's just incredibly humbling to be associated with with these people and. Um, I go home every day and tell them that they they are so motivated by what they do, by the mission and by the, in, in serving this country. It's it's and, and INR and, and actually the rest of the intelligence community this way. It's just I mean, it's an incredible privilege to be given this opportunity to come back. I can't believe I'm here. And are you able
0: to I mean, there's a lot of politics swirling around right about intelligence. And I'm just wondering to what extent you're able to shield them from all of that.
2: So it's it's state department again it's a little different because pol- support to policy is different than support to defense or, or law enforcement operations that's much more a science policy is is an art you know the analysts at INR have for the most part always been aware of you know politics and policy and and they've they you know this is a world that they've grown up in they're very familiar with this is not new you know it, maybe it's gotten a little hotter but the reality is is that they're they they understand you know, they come in every day knowing that, you know, that there'll be a new boss and, and they're there to serve that new boss no matter where the policy is going. So they're very professional in that regard. And, you know, I'll tell you that I love being back in the intelligence community because it, it still is very stable. You know, we're still doing um, what the IC was doing when you were there and and when I was there last. And, and it's just incredible to work with these men and women.
0: Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Ellen McCarthy. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.